0: Good morning, Restoration Church. I'm sorry that we can't be together again. This is two weeks in a row where the snow has conspired to keep us apart. Uh, I miss you guys. I hope that you are well. I hope that you're out enjoying the snow with family and friends, and I pray that we get to see each other soon. I'm going to read all four scripture readings myself and then just go into my sermon. The Old Testament lesson today is from Ezekiel chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see, but see not, who have ears to hear, but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. As for you, son of man, prepare yourself an exile's baggage and go into exile by day in their sight. You shall go like an exile from your place to another place in their sight. Perhaps they will understand though they are a rebellious house. You shall bring out your baggage by day in their sight as baggage for exile, and you shall go out yourself at evening in their sight as those do who must go into exile. In their sight, dig through the wall and bring your baggage out through it. In their sight, you shall lift the baggage upon your shoulder and carry it out at dusk. You shall cover your face that you may not see the land, for I have made you a sign for the house of Israel. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The psalm this week is the same psalm it was last week. It's Psalm 146. We decided to use it again. Maybe we'll use it next week too. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes in the Son of Man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he will bring to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. World without end. Amen. The New Testament reading today is from 1 Corinthians, it's chapter 1, verses 20 through 25. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel lesson this morning is Mark chapter 8. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and he said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his his disciples, and he went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them. He got into the boat again, and he went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? When I broke the five lobes for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And for the seven, for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And then they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to see him a blind man, and they begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on him again. And he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And then Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And then he began to teach them, saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days would rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me and follow me, I'm sorry, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But... Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This passage, Mark 8, is... I've been talking for weeks about the center of the book of Mark and how the first part of the book of Mark asks a question over and over again that gets answered right at the center. And here it is. That was it. We see Jesus going throughout Galilee. He's showing people... He's telling people. He's healing people and he's teaching people. All of these things, healing, miraculous, uh, miraculous signs, teaching with authority. And yet the leaders still come to him and they demand a sign. And then it ends up at the very end of the passage that his followers think that they know better than he does. And you can almost hear Jesus just being completely befuddled, just beside himself. He can see that this generation is going to go their own way. He can see that this generation, that every generation, that our generation is is going to struggle for the kingdom on their own terms rather than on his. And that's the constant problem. It was the problem in Jesus' day with his disciples. It was the problem in the apostolic era with the new churches. It's the problem throughout the history of the church that even those who see God and want to follow God, that we still want to do it on our own terms rather than on his. And that's why in this passage... After the Pharisees demand a sign from him, and he says, No sign's going to be given to you. And then they get into the boat, and they're, they're talking about bread. They're talking about this one little measly loaf of bread that they have for all 13 of them. And that's why Jesus uses that as a sign, he, as, a, as a symbol. He points to the bread, and he starts talking about leaven, which is yeast. He starts talking about yeast. Because you see, all throughout the year, for the Jews at this time, all throughout the year in their regular lives, Jews would make yeast to 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 make bread, like most cultures do. But at a special time of the year, at Passover, they would intentionally make their bread without yeast, and they did this to remind themselves of the time of the flight from Egypt in the book of Exodus, when God saved them out of slavery, when he saved them to himself, and when he saved them for a new life, lived for his glory and for the life of the world. And that yearly reminder of Passover was supposed to help them center themselves on God's big story of what he was doing for his people and what he was doing through his people for his creation. And so all of this is wrapped up in Jesus pointing at this loaf of bread, talking about the leaven of the Pharisees. It's just another way that Jesus was, was intentionally pointing backwards toward the Exodus time and saying, Look, look, at, look, look in front of you, look at me. The true exodus is here now. He was looking back at all the traditions and all the commandments of the Old Testament about keeping the festivals that God had commanded them to keep. And he was saying, look, all of those things, every one of them, all of them point to the real kingdom of God promised in the future. But the real kingdom of God promised in the future is now. You're living in it. But almost no one could see it. The scribes and the Pharisees couldn't see it. We heard in previous weeks his own family couldn't even see it. They thought that he had lost his mind. They thought he'd gone nuts. They were looking to find him, bring him back home, because they thought he'd gone mad. But sometimes the revelation that God gives his people when, the, when their eyes are opened, sometimes that revelation comes progressively rather than all at once. There's a a quote in an Ernest Hemingway novel called The Sun Also Rises, where one character says to another, So how did you go bankrupt? And the other one replies, Uh, two ways, gradually and then suddenly. Sometimes you'll hear that attributed to F. Scott Fitzgerald, but it's Hemingway. It's so it's, how did this happen? Well, it kind of it happened gradually and then all at once. And and that's how the disciples are in this passage. And that's how Peter is when he says what he says. And so I want to focus in on the last two stories of Mark 8. And it's no accident that Mark puts these stories together to very clearly illustrate the theme of Jesus' revelation of himself to the world. Remember, in, in the book of Mark, Mark is short, and it's mostly about action. And so no detail is included in Mark by accident. It's a, it, There's not a ton of background information given, so whatever Mark has put in there... Is put in there on purpose. So, Jesus takes his disciples all the way up to Caesarea Philippi. This is a long walk. They were in the village of Bethsaida. Bethsaida is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Caesarea Philippi is way up north in the Golan Heights, it's by the northern border of Israel. It is, it's the base of Mount Hermon, and it's the source of the Jordan River. It's mentioned a few times in, in the Old Testament. In the book of Joshua, it's called, uh, the the area at that time is called Baal Gad, and, and it was the northern edge of the area that Joshua conquered. So I think it's probably significant that here we see Jesus, whose Hebrew name was Yeshua, which is what today we call Joshua. Why did Yeshua take the disciples all the way to the edge of the territory that Joshua conquered? Why did he take them to the very start, to the headwaters of the Jordan River? Why take them far away from their normal back-and-forth wanderings across the lake? I mean, half the book of Mark is they got in the boat and they went across the other side, then they got in the boat and they came back. So why go several days' journey away from this just so that he could tell them something? It's because it's important, because he wanted to get them out of the daily back-and-forth flow of their lives. Sometimes, as we we live lives as Christians, we live lives as, as Christians, as sojourners in a foreign kingdom, and yet we are called to be salt and light to the world. Sometimes when we're doing that, it's very easy to lose the forest for the trees, right? You get focused on little individual things, and you miss the big story of what God is doing. Sometimes even when you read the Bible. It's easy to lose sight of the forest for the trees. You get so focused on what does one verse mean or what does this what does this one image mean that you lose sight of the big story. But it's important to look at this section of Mark because this is literally someone missing the forest for the trees. This question and answer at the dead center of the book of Mark at the end of Mark 8 is what I have been talking about for the last seven weeks. And so... We see these two stories in Bethsaida. Jesus leads a blind man out of the village, away from his life and his people and any distractions. With the disciples, then Jesus leads them out of the village, up to Mount Hermon, away from the lake and their jobs and their lives. When Jesus is with the blind man, the blind man gets his sight back gradually and then suddenly. And for the disciples, for the last seven chapters, they have been getting this revelation of who Jesus is and what he's really here to do. They have been getting their revelation gradually, and then they express it suddenly. And there's a two-step process of revelation for both of these stories. For the blind man, he first sees... He, Jesus spits on the guy's eyes, which is memorable and gross, and he says, do you see anything? And the blind man, it's, it, it always cracks me up. The blind man says, well, I, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Now, for me, this is funny because I wear glasses or contacts. And if I don't have my glasses on or my contacts in, I literally can't see anything. Anything more than six inches in front of my face is completely blurry. So it's really easy for me to think about what this blind man was seeing in this, this interim stage, this first stage where he's getting his sight back. So the guy can now see something, but it it just looks like it's trees walking around. And that's the same with with the people that are following Jesus. These people, the disciples and the crowds, have been following Jesus and seeing what he's doing and listening to him. So they can see Jesus, but at first, they think he's only a prophet. So the man is seeing, seeing, seeing something, but then... In the second stage, he sees things clearly. He can see exactly what is in front of him. He can see reality for how it really is. And he sees Jesus for how he really is. Because we know this, because Jesus treats him the same way that he treated the demons who'd who'd been proclaiming who Jesus was. He says, shut up, don't tell anybody, go home. He says to the blind man, go back to your house, don't even enter the village. It's not time to tell who I am. Same thing with the disciples. At first, the crowd see Jesus, but they think he's only a prophet. But at the end of Mark 8, on the road to Caesarea Philippi, the disciples see clearly. They see the world for how it really is. They see reality for, for what it's meant to be. And they see Jesus for who he really is. And we get this picture, picture of Peter. Peter, who is often uh, in the mouthpiece for the disciples. Peter is the one that we believe told these stories to a guy named John Mark, and John Mark wrote it down, and that's the book, The Gospel According to Mark. This same Peter, when Jesus is saying, who do people think that I am? And the disciples are saying, well, they say that you're a prophet, or that you're John the Baptist, or Elijah. Basically, they're just saying the same thing over and over again. You're some kind of prophet. And it's Peter who wheels around on Jesus when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, this is a bombshell. If this were a movie, this would be the time for like the flashback montage of all the little snippets that we've seen this far. It would be a whole bunch of Old Testament stories, and you'd see them in rapid succession. God's promise to Abraham, stories of the flight from Egypt in Exodus, the, the Israelites being placed in the promised land. You'd see a story about King David. You'd see the picture of God promising to King David that he would have a successor Everything leads up to this point where Peter turns to Jesus of Nazareth and said, you are the Messiah. Now, I know that in the ESV that I just read out, it says Christ, you are the Christ. Christ or Christos is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. It means the exact same thing. It's the one anointed with oil. It's the promised king. Okay, so what does this mean? What does this mean for Peter? What does it mean for us? Well, a a few things to keep in mind. Let me first tell you what it doesn't mean. Um, This has absolutely nothing to do with the divinity of Jesus. You know, we say that we believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And there is plenty of stuff elsewhere in the Gospels, even elsewhere in Mark, where Jesus speaks plainly about his own divinity. But this is not that. This actually has nothing to do with the idea of Jesus being God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Messiah doesn't mean that. Peter's statement, you're the Messiah, is exactly the reason why Jesus has been telling everyone who figures out who he really is, don't tell anybody yet. Don't say anything. Because what Peter is saying, you are the Messiah, this is This is both a theological statement, because Israel has always been God's chosen people, guided by God, with God as their supreme national leader. But this is a massive cultural and political statement. If the Messiah is here, the promised heir of King David, who would rule and reign on David's throne forever, then that means that the status quo of the day of these disciples has a serious problem all of the local leaders, all the kings of tiny little kingdoms. Remember uh, last week I talked about Herod Antipas um, from such films as I chopped off the head of John the Baptist and put it on a plate. Here you go. Her- Herod Antipas is going to have a serious problem if the Messiah is here, if the real king has turned up. And not just the tiny kings from local areas. This is actually, they're on the road to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a Roman city with a a big new temple in it to a big new pagan god, a god named Caesar. And so if Jesus is saying, the real king is here now, that's going to upset everything about Israel being a servant state to the empire. There's nothing that's not going to be affected by this. And this is a political statement, and it's a cultural statement. And that's what the disciples had figured out. The king is here. So we haven't yet gotten to dying on the cross for the sins of the world. We haven't gotten to being raised from the dead on the third day as the, the start of the renewal of all things. But this right here, Peter saying, you are the Messiah. This is the gospel that John the Baptist had been preaching at the beginning of Mark. This is the gospel that Jesus himself was preaching at the beginning of his ministry. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe this good news. The kingdom of God is here. That's the same thing. Peter says, you are the Messiah. All of the promises that God has made to his people, all have started to be fulfilled in this man, Jesus. All of the years they thought had wasted, God has come near. The kingdom of God is at hand. Centuries, literally centuries of being kicked around by different empires and passed back and forth between warring factions um, like some third string player on a team that nobody thought was good enough to play but not not quite bad enough to cut that's what Israel's been for hundreds and hundreds of years but God had made them a promise and then they felt like God had abandoned them but he hadn't God had not forgotten his promise God was providing for his people, even in the midst of their exile, even in the midst of their suffering. God was providing for his people, and God was making a way for them to come back to him. God had promised King David a descendant who would reign with perfect justice and righteousness, with perfect peace and mercy, and that that kingdom that he reigned in could never be conquered and never be overthrown. If you ever hear someone from from any of our churches referring to the idea of King Jesus, this is why. Identifying Jesus as the Messiah is recognizing that he is king. So that's what Peter is saying with these three words. You're the Messiah. And that should be the end of the story, like, seen. Done. See you next week. Except that's not the end of this story, because the Bible is not a fairy tale book where everything works out perfectly. The Bible is a real account of real things that happen to real people. And most of the time, real people do stupid stuff every now and then. And this is what kills me. Even after seeing all that King Jesus had done and taught, all of his miracles, all of his healing, all of his teaching, and then immediately after Peter confesses Jesus as Christ, and then Jesus says, okay, now here's what's going to happen to me. Even with all that authority that Peter has recognized in him, Peter rebukes what Jesus says. Jesus says, okay, here's what's going to happen to me. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be handed over to the authorities and I'm going to die. They're going to kill me, but I'm going to be raised from the dead. And even though Peter has said, you're the promised king, you're the Messiah. He hears what Jesus said. He hears what Jesus prophesies about his own future and he rebukes him for it. In effect, Jesus is saying, I'm the king. Here's what that means. Here's what my kingdom is going to look like. And Peter says, No, 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 that's not what's going to happen to, to my king. Here, here's, let me, let me tell you what the king is like. Jesus tells me how things are going to be, but I decide that my version of a, mess, of a Messiah is better than Jesus is, and so I try to argue with him. I'm not just saying that happens to Peter. That happens to me too, and maybe that happens to you. Yes, Jesus is king, and Jesus is telling me how his kingdom is going to work. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he has a command over my life. Yes, Jesus is king, but when I get to a point where What he says differs from what I have decided is true and good and beautiful. I'm going to rebuke him instead of maybe changing my own ideas on something. So yes, Jesus is king, but I still have the audacity to rebuke him. And By the way, this is definitely not the last time that Peter is going to rebuke King Jesus to his face, but we're going to get to that in about eight weeks. So, Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus says, here's what the shape of my kingdom is. And here's what my reign is going to look like. And Peter says, no, 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 no. Let me tell you. So what is, what does King Jesus do? Does he throw Peter out of the club? No, he does exactly what the king should do. First, he, he rebukes Peter. That's good. He corrects his misperception. He doesn't excuse it. But he also doesn't kick him out either, because he still wants Peter to grow. He still wants Peter to be his apprentice. He still wants Peter to be his follower and his apostle. And that's what he wants for you, and that's what he wants for me. And then he gives a really good counterpoint to the the kind of view that Peter was probably offering. Because if Jesus is saying, my kingdom, my, my reign, my authority is going to be a reign of suffering and then glorification. It's going to be a reign of death and then life. Peter was probably saying, no, 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 no. We're going to be be in charge. God's going to come on the scene, and we're going to kick out the Romans, and everything's going to be great. But Jesus gives a really good counter to that view. He said, no, 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 the Messiah must suffer. King Jesus must suffer. And he goes on to say, not only is this the shape of my kingdom and the shape of my kingly reign, but this is the shape of all my subjects he says if anyone would follow me they have to suffer too and they should deny themselves rather than denying jesus do you do you hear how that's part of of the rebuke that that jesus would have given to peter it's it's funny if you think about jesus as king he he really is assembling the weirdest kingdom like it he's been amassing this group of followers but it's like He's going around the countryside gathering these people up, but it's not an army. It's not a militia that's being trained to take on Herod like King David did. Instead, Jesus has been showing them and teaching them what the real kingdom of God is, that it's going to upset all categories that these people have for what a kingdom is. Jesus has been putting forward this strange new agenda in his actions and in his words it's an agenda of renewal, of restoration, of self-sacrifice, of putting others before ourselves. What a weird kingdom to be a part of. And now, now he's saying that the citizens of this kingdom, the followers of the king, instead of, instead of getting to be top dog and strut around like members of the club where the leader of the club literally cannot be killed, which sounds like a pretty sweet gig. Instead of instead of having this status heaped on themselves, this kingdom is actually built on denying ourselves, on turning away from what we want, on taking up our cross, and on being like Jesus. And it reminds me a lot of what we heard in Ezekiel this morning. God wanted Ezekiel to basically act out this pantomime for the people of Jerusalem and the people of Israel, because he recognized that that Israel was a rebellious house and he said to Ezekiel, you need to behave like a sojourner. You need to prepare for yourself an exile's baggage and go into exile in their sight. Perhaps they will understand, although they are a rebellious house. He said, you shall bring out your baggage by day in their sight and you will dig through the wall and you'll put your bags through it. And so in your sight, You shall lift up your baggage on your shoulder and carry it out at dusk. Isn't that a picture of Jesus carrying his cross to Calvary? Isn't that a picture of what we are called to do when we are called to deny ourselves, when we are called to behave as sojourners and aliens in a foreign land, when we are called to pick up our own cross and deny ourselves and follow Jesus? And so now that we've arrived at this center of Mark, this is the hinge point of the gospel of Mark. We've answered the question that the first half of the book has been whispering over and over and over again. And now at this point, the narrative starts to shift. The question of the first half of the book is about the identity of Jesus. And that question has been answered. Who do people say that I am? You are the Messiah. The, The question in the second half of the book is about the mission of Jesus. So the next next big question that we ask ourselves is not, who is Jesus, but what is he here to do? And he starts to answer that. At this point, at the end of Mark, it shifts, and you can see it. Peter says, you are the Messiah. And then Jesus starts talking about what he's here to do and what's going to happen to him. And so you have to ask yourself, what does it mean for us to be followers of Christ? What does it mean for us who are commanded to deny ourselves, and to pick up our cross daily and follow him on this march into death, follow him on this march towards death, into new life. If Jesus has a mission on this earth, what's our part in that? Not just in a big grand sense, but also in a day-to-day sense. Because while we can't miss the forest for the trees, While we can't focus on individual things so much that we miss the big story, we also eventually have to get from the big story back down to the trees. We have to get from the forest to the trees. And so over the next seven, over the next seven weeks, we're going to be looking at the mission of Jesus in the second half of Mark. And also how that translates into us as followers of Jesus being on mission for him. Let me pray. I love you guys. I miss you. And I hope we get to see each other next Sunday.